I always think it's a great way to start service with a baptism. Uh, and I'm super excited to be able to give Omar a hug afterwards. I told him I didn't want to get all wet before I, I preached, but uh, that's just selfish of me. And so uh, after our, our service today, I'd encourage you all to find Omar, give him a hug, uh, greet him as our new brother in Christ. Uh, it's a good, a good morning. Um, this morning, I want to talk to you about Roman history um, and, and specifically about the idea of a triumph. Um, we use that word a lot nowadays, and it meant something very different to the Romans than it does to us. Uh, it, it does have the association of victory, but a triumph was not just having accomplished something. It was the celebration of the individual that had conquered. And so if you were a general... Uh, or Caesar himself, and you had led an army into war and claimed a new province for the entirety of Rome, you received a triumph at the vote of the Senate. The Senate would say, this is someone who has done something great for Rome, and we want to recognize them and honor them and proclaim their greatness. And it was this big or elaborate ordeal. Um, In fact, you could not cross over into Rome as a general. You could not cross over into Rome as a trained military man. The moment you crossed into the city of Rome, you lost all military power and status. There was this imaginary line built around the city that if you crossed over that, you were no longer a general. You were no longer a commander of men. You were just a citizen of Rome. It was this magical moment where you lost all authority and you had to stand as just a common man. But if you were coming for triumph, all of that was changed. You would come to the gates of the city, having been asked to come by the Senate for the recognition of the good work that you had done to be proclaimed the imperator, not the emperor, but the imperator, the one who had conquered, the one who had victory over the enemy. And you would wear this elaborate purple robe and your face would be painted red so that people would know that you were the representation of Jupiter, that you were the representation of the patron god of the city of Rome. And what would happen then is that you would lead, you would lead a march into the city. You would be the front, the center of attention. And behind you would be the army that you had conquered, the, the, the prisoners that you had taken, the king of the nation that was now in submission to you. And they would be in shackles. And they would be booed. Food would be thrown at them. They'd be mistreated by the commoners who were watching this great spectacle. And you, the imperator, the great one, the one who was the representation of Jupiter, who wore the kingly robe, would march into the city, leading your enemies behind you. And behind them would be all these depictions, these great murals like billboard trucks that would show the the might and the splendor of the nation that you had just conquered. Big, elaborate pictures, murals that, that showed how mighty and powerful you were and actually how mighty and powerful your enemies were because if they were mighty and powerful, you had to be even more mighty and more powerful to have conquered them. 
And most people who lived in Rome might never actually travel outside of the city. They may not go very far. And so they don't know what the nation you have conquered is known for. And they might bring in the animals of that nation, the peculiar creatures that had been found there, and they'd be led and paraded through. And so if you conquered in Africa, you'd take the, the uh, elephants and the giraffes because they were the most bizarre and strange creatures in the minds of the Roman citizens. And they would follow you. And behind them would be your army, the ones that had done all of this good work in your name. Good work in quotation marks here. In your name. And it was known that they would then chant and sing to the Roman citizens songs about how they had gone and spent all the money that the Roman citizens had contributed to the Senate on wine and the spoils of war and that they had lived it up in these foreign lands and that they had done unspeakable things. And you can actually go and see how awful and terrible these songs are. There are are translations of them today. But essentially, they'd go in and they'd brag about the debauchery of the military. This is how we've spent the money of Rome. Oh yeah, and in the process, we managed to conquer a new nation. And you'd march through the city, and you'd go to the Circus Maximus, the very large uh, coliseum that would hold more than any sports stadium today can hold. And you would march this whole procession around in there multiple times, over and over again, so that the common folk could see this happen. And then you would leave the Circus Maximus and you would begin the process of marching towards the Temple of Jupiter and it would be this winding path. And this is where all the hoity-toity people in Rome would be because they don't want to go and be a part of the circus. They don't want to watch you walk the track and see all this with the common people who are obnoxious and annoying and don't bathe regularly and you know maybe don't have enough money to be able to have a private villa along the path of the triumph. And so you would be there in your your apartment above the street watching this parade go by, feeling really good about yourself and your status in Rome because you're now associated with this triumph as well. And as this this imperator would march toward the temple of Jupiter, he would proclaim the good news of Roman dominion. And as he arrives at the temple of Jupiter the prisoners behind him would be executed. Not all of them. Some of them would be left around to be made slaves of. Some of them would become uh, citizens themselves if they had been particularly significant and important in their own nation. They might be sent back as like a vassal servant of some kind. But most of them were executed. Now, the Romans prided themselves on the idea that they were not keen on human sacrifice to their gods. They said that this was not something that they believed in, that their gods didn't want the blood of humans. But Jupiter's temple's footsteps, the the steps up to the temple, were littered with the bodies of these men. You'd get to the front of the line, the top of the steps, and the, the imperator would stand with the priests of Jupiter, and he would offer two white bulls whose horns had been gilded in gold on the altar there to culminate the not-human sacrifice that had just happened. His face as red as Jupiter's. His robe as purple as any king. And then he'd continue his procession throughout the city, 
they'd feast and they'd drink and they'd sing their body songs and he'd be escorted back to his private residence that evening and he'd wake up the next morning just a citizen of Rome. But for a day, he spent the entire day on a chariot, heralded, paraded as a great figure nearly divine in nature. Now there's a myth, maybe a true myth, a legend, a a thought, that a a servant would ride behind him and whisper in his ear, either memento more, remember that you are mortal, that you must die, or remember that you are a man, to keep his head from getting too big. It's a little hard, though. I don't know if you've ever been in a parade. I was in marching band in high school because I was that cool. And I remember getting to march in parades And it was pretty awesome because you're one of like 75, 80, 100 people in the band, but you feel like all this cheering that's going on the sides is just for you. All these people have come out just to see you. Never mind that, you know, there's like really impressive floats ahead of you and behind you. And everyone kind of uses the moment that the band comes through as an excuse to like go find the bathroom and then come back. Uh, But you feel like this parade route is your parade route. And your head gets just a little bit bigger. And you think about how nice you look in your uniform and you know, how you've been practicing this uh, Sousa march for weeks on end. And you're, you're really good at it. And everybody's getting to hear just how talented and special you are. And that's just a high school marching band parade. No amount of whispering in your ear is going to convince you as the imperator that your days are about to end. You ride high, even, even when you become the private citizen of Rome the next day, and you get to pay a lot of money to continue the feast out of your own pocket to be able to keep people really liking you and build up your political position. You ride high, and you think very highly of yourself. And I can't help but think that although the triumphal entry of Jesus prophesied in the Old Testament that God was thinking very much about the triumphs of Rome when he offered that prophecy to the prophets. That in his mind, God knew what mankind thought of as triumph. The sort of things that we would celebrate. The ways we might build a human being up to be God in our own eyes. And in that light, while the triumphal entry seems very spectacular and magnificent to most of us, I think it is in many ways God mocking us. Or at least mocking our idea of what power looks like. Now it is a beautiful image. We should celebrate the triumphal entry of Jesus. The proclamation of Hosanna to the King of Kings is a beautiful and wonderful thing, and we should proclaim that on a regular basis. I don't know if you know this. Hosanna literally means, save us. It is an exclamation that we believe that the one that we are crying Hosanna to has the power to save us. But the interesting thing about this is that as we read the story of the triumphal entry, what we end up seeing I'm missing a whole slide up there. That's okay. What we end up seeing is this, this, 
very interesting uh, little piece here. It says, The next day the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. All right. Jesus is not called ahead to the, the wise council that rests in Jerusalem. He has not asked them to accept him and invite him into the city. He has not received a special invitation for a parade. The people decide what we're going to do is we're going to meet Jesus as he comes into the city. We've heard about him. We've heard about the things he's done, and we will meet him as he comes into the city. And it says, So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Now it's no chariot pulled by two or four or six or ten marvelous white horses. Just a donkey's colt. A bunch of palm branches being waved, and it's a parade of one man. There is no conquered army following him. There is no big display of the nations that he has, has managed to subdue. There is no army that comes in to sing about how great and magnificent they are and how magnificent he is. It is just those on the parade route along the sides who see this man riding on a donkey and say, this, this is the king of kings. His disciples did not understand these things at first, John says. His disciples did not understand these things. Why in the world is he riding into the city on the back of a colt? You know, we believe he's the Messiah. Why isn't he making a bigger deal out of himself than he is? If they were going to throw a parade for us, we could have really got ready for this whole thing. We could have gone and found the best steed for him to ride in on. We could have put a sword on his side. We could have draped him in the correct robes. We could have really made a spectacle out of it. We don't understand. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. Jesus, notice, didn't do this for himself. These things were done to him. Someone recognized who Jesus was, and he didn't have to tell them to do it. He didn't need the face paint and the marches and the the songs in order to be able to rile a crowd, to be able to come and recognize and hail him for who he was. He just needed to be who he was. Now, the interesting thing about it is that we have a whole cast of characters that show up here. And, and I think that what we end up seeing is that John, very aware of the triumphs of Rome, orders this in the correct way. Because the first group of people that really respond to Jesus 
are these Greek individuals. It says, now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. And there's a little interlude here about them going and asking the, the apostles to go get Jesus so that they can meet him. And, and they say, sir, we would like to see Jesus. Now, first of all, it's very interesting that Greeks have come to celebrate the Passover. So unusual. But their, their belief, their excitement, their enthusiasm about the God of Israel is genuine. That's what they're for, to celebrate the festival, to recognize, as Israel had always been intended to be, the beacon of truth about Yahweh that Israel was. And having heard about this Jesus, they want to see him. And so the foreign army that is about to be conquered requests an audience with the king of kings. And they receive it. And Jesus proclaims good news to them. He's excited. He's telling them and his disciples that this is something that has long been intended. Uh, In fact, he says, um, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And he continues to tell them this good news about what's about to happen. They don't fully understand what he's saying, but this is the beginning of the first fruits. This is the moment at which the nations are drawn to Jerusalem for the restoration that God has intended for them from the very beginning. And Jesus proclaims that he must be lifted up, and people are confused about this. And then as he's explaining himself, a voice from heaven talks about the glory of God and says, my name has been glorified and it will be glorified again. There's not a man standing behind Jesus whispering in his ear, remember you must die. Jesus proclaims that about himself. And in his proclamation of that, he is not saying, I am immortal and will never die. He's saying, this is how I will be glorified. By being lifted up. Not by being hailed as a God, although if anyone had the right to be, but by being lifted up. Not by bringing others to be sacrificed on the Temple Mount, but offering myself. I'm not going to take all these Greeks that have just come to have an audience with me and sacrifice them to someone. I will become a sacrifice for them. And then we have this second group of people. And that slide's not there either. That's okay. The interesting thing about it is that the second group of people are Jesus' own people. These are the ones that have had generations to anticipate his arrival. If there was ever a group of people that might sing, I'm in the Lord's army, it would be these individuals. They have a long history of being the Lord's army, fighting against the nations, driving them out of the promised land, becoming a greater and greater people in the process of doing so. And they are the ones that, if it were a Roman triumph, would be marching at the back of the line saying, look how great we are and what all good we've done, and we are so wonderful, and this is our king. 
And John, John tells us this. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded the eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, nevertheless, many of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. So the army that should be following Jesus does not boldly, raucously proclaim the good news. Many of them who don't believe openly express it. And those who do believe hide themselves away. And at the end of all of this, we have the scripture reading that was read for us this morning by David. Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my word has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Jesus tells the crowd, what you expect from a king is not what I'm here for. I have not come to judge, but to save. And as we've been reading through the Gospel of John, we have heard Jesus say that multiple times now. And I think it's been building to this point, this moment at which Jesus is saying, my goal is not to offer you on the altar, but to offer myself so you don't have to be given to death. I have not come to condemn you, but to save you. And the irony is, over the course of the next several days, the plot to condemn Jesus intensifies. And it is only by his condemnation that any of the individuals who condemn him have the hope of salvation. In many ways, the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem 
and the, the events that follow on that same day are a perfect inversion of the picture of triumph that the Romans had. But sometimes, I think that we still want the triumph of Rome and not the triumph of Jesus. We want a big parade with a hero who has come to conquer our enemies, not to save them. We want a big parade for the man who has done lavish and extravagant things, not the one who rides in with no celebration of himself, but the glorification of the Father. And I want to encourage us to think very carefully about the ways in which we as Christians think about glorification, about where we belong in society. If we feel as though we belong on top or as though we feel that we belong on the bottom because that's how God glorifies himself and that's how we will glorify him. And I think the first thing that we're going to see next week is the way in which Jesus does exactly that. By placing himself on the bottom, he finds himself glorified. Next week, we're going to talk about the washing of the disciples' feet. And I want to encourage you to think between now and then how these two stories, this, the story of the triumphal entry, or I heard someone call it the atriumphal entry as I was doing some research on this. Think about how that story and the story of the washing of the feet of the disciples Tell us what authority in the kingdom of heaven looks like. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we want to glorify you. And sometimes we think that means big, lavish parades, and it means yelling and stomping and singing about the ways in which you have overcome our enemies, stomped them into the ground, destroyed them, made us look big over them. But Father, you know that Jesus was the only one in the parade. He was the conquering king. He was the army that was about to be sacrificed. And he is the only one who could bring victory. Jesus plays all the roles in this story. And what he calls for us is not condemnation, It is not to take up arms against our enemies, but instead to be saved by him. And then to take on his image and to sacrifice ourselves for others. Help us to have that humility in the week ahead of us. It's all this that we pray in his name. Amen. I want to encourage you this morning, you have seen a baptism. You have witnessed someone taking on the image of Christ, submitting their lives to him. And if you would like to be baptized, the water is already ready. We don't have to fill the baptistry. There's no extra waiting for that. If you want to be baptized this morning, we would baptize you. If you have need of the church, if you require prayer, if you need someone to maybe sit down and have a Bible study with you, or you just want someone to listen to what it is that you're concerned about today, I'm going to be at the back of the auditorium. You're welcome to find me. We have some individuals here this morning that would be happy to pray with you. We actually have a prayer room. It's labeled library, but it's actually a prayer room now. Uh, off to the side, if you'd just like a quiet moment to reflect on, uh, on 
anything that's happened in worship, but maybe on some thoughts you've had during the sermon today. We'd invite you to join us at the back of the auditorium or find yourself in a position where you can visit with someone who's going to encourage you in the ways you need to be encouraged today. Let's stand and sing.